Hello, hello. Welcome back. It's our last episode in our series called The Table. And we end on this great conversation with Georgia Pellegrini. Now, many of you may have read her books, Food Heroes, Girl Hunter, or Modern Pioneering, or maybe you've just seen her on Jimmy Kimmel Live or on the cover of Shooting Sportsman magazine. Yeah, really. Or maybe, like me, you've just bumped into her through mutual friends and thought, hmm, this is a woman worth getting to know. Regardless, you're all going to really benefit from this conversation with Georgia about women, food, and faith. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. So welcome, Georgia. Thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. Um, okay, so you and I have talked on and off and, uh, about Jesus and faith and women, and you know that um, out of all of God's creation, humans are basically the only ones that eat communally, which I think that is fascinating, and that meals are not solely about nourishment, that they are function, they function as tools for building community. And I have shared with the listeners at the beginning of this series about how I grew up on a farm in upstate New York and food and the table. It was central to my life. Uh, All kinds of things to learn around the table. And you and I have a similar story in that we both grew up in upstate New York and in ways kind of grew up living off the land. So I thought in order for our audience to get to know you a little bit, share, you might share a little bit about your upbringing and specifically like what you learned from your childhood table. Yeah, I actually do think it's really interesting that we had such a similar sort of um, environment growing up. And I did grow up in the Hudson Valley, and it's been in my family for 100 years where we we grew up. And I realize now that was sort of a unique thing, and I appreciate it now more than I did then. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I yeah, it was the same land that my great-grandfather lived on. And so my grandmother and my great-aunt and my parents were all there. And, you know, I grew up very much getting dirt under my fingernails. Um, I had a great aunt who knew the name of every single plant around us and would, you know, walk me around and teach me the names of those plants. And, you know, they saw value where the rest of the world saw weeds, you know, they saw nutritional value in uh, purslane and told me it had a more omega threes than salmon. Um, and they taught me about unusual plants and all their healing attributes. And, you know, I foraged and uh, fish trout for breakfast. And so I think I, grew up with a really deep connection to nature and um, had a real sort of love of it. And it was really part of, part of me on a cellular level, I think. Um, and I, and I soon realized that, you know, the further I got away from it, but yeah, very much so it was a huge part of my life growing up. Yeah. And I think when we grow up living off the land, we don't even realize how much the land becomes a part of us. It, it is, it yeah. is, it is, it is innately a part of us for sure. It's true. Um, true. And it's very, to the table. I mean, you know, I had a childhood table that 
was constantly sort of working in a symbiotic way with you know, what we were growing or foraging. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I bet most people don't know this about you, but you went to college and then went to work at Wall Street, and then you left that job. You did like a, a right-hand turn and pursued what I call <laughs> a life around the table. So yeah. share a little bit about the journey you went on and, and and in doing so, maybe highlight for us different ways that you've experienced the table. Because I don't want people to think I'm only talking about a physical table, although that is included. Um, but scripture has all kinds of stories wrapped around food and mealtime, and the table can take on like a, ver- a variety of different forms. So share a little bit about your journey from Wall Street to the table. Sure. So in college, there wasn't a lot of encouragement to to pursue a path, you know, that I ended up going down. Um, You know, there was sort of the path of least resistance, which was finance or consulting or law school. And um, I took one of those paths. I actually ended up working at Lehman Brothers, which um, was a Wall Street investment bank, um, which was very alluring as a poor college student. Um, And so I ended up sitting at a desk in the middle of Times Square with a million million screens around me. Um, And I think it really put my life in high relief where I could suddenly see sort of what mattered and what didn't. Mm. And that would be the silver lining. But I, you know, I suddenly was really looking for things that felt more real and lasting and tangible um, because what I was doing seemed so unnatural to me at the time. And I was literally, I mean, I was literally watching a cafeteria dinner cart roll by from my desk night after night. So I could say that's pretty contradictory to a table life. You know, yes. there was no opportunity to sit with people and break bread. It was really, you know, an isolated sort of late night life. Um, and of course I started, started looking, looking around me and, and saw there was nobody that I really wanted to be when I grew up. Um, mm. and I saw that the longer I stayed, the harder it would be to leave because I would be trapped in trying to sustain a lifestyle. Um, and so I, I took a leap of faith um, and I went to culinary school because I realized, um, you know, what was I doing when I was the happiest? And it was using my hands. It was those things that were closest to how I had grown up, you know, getting my hands in the dirt or what I call manual literacy, you know, the act of sort of creating or doing things with your hands. And so I went to culinary school um, and I worked the same crazy hours that I had been working in finance, um, but it didn't feel like work in the same way. Something clicked. You know, I was making probably below minimum wage comparatively to what I had been making, but it just felt something came alive in me. Um, and so that's sort of how I, I would say, entered into the table life as a vocation. And so share a little bit about what that means, the table life as a vocation. What did you end up doing from there? So I worked at restaurants in New York and then ultimately in the south of France. Um, these, in some cases, were farm-to-table restaurants. And what meant a lot to me about it was that I was not just cooking things and putting them in the center of big white plates. I was, you know, killing the turkey for the kitchen and field dressing it and then preparing it and t- treating it with integrity all the way to the plate. Um, harvesting greens, harvesting honey, collecting eggs. Um, to me, it was participating in the full cycle of what it is to bring a meal to the table, um, to bring community around a table. It was sort of from beginning to end, um, the way humans, I think, are meant to participate in the table. And so to me, it just felt very natural and very much, you know, what I was meant to be doing. Yeah. And I agree with you. Like I, this is, 
my own thought here, but I've always kind of wondered if some of the alienation that I see um, working with people as a pastor and listening to their sense of disconnect um, and and this deep longing to want to be known, there just seems to be like an alienation is what I would say. And I've always wondered if part of it is because we have removed ourselves from the land, from the full process, right? Yeah. Um, I'll I'll never forget my, you know, my parents always had, we we, we were crop farmers. And so um, later in my parents' retirement years, my dad had a big garden and I would always bring my kids up to upstate New York and we'd go into the garden and they'd get their fresh peas and beans. And so they understood what it meant to like get things from the ground. And so I came back to Dallas and I had this little girl that was Madison's friend and she must have been like four and and her mom called me and goes, Hey, what was those the type of green bean that you fed um her? Because she's never eaten that before. Like she doesn't like green beans. And I'm like, type of green bean? Yeah, she like what brand in the store? And I was like, Oh no, no, I <laughs> I we picked them. <laughs> and she goes like, You mean raw green bean? I'm like, Yeah, from the garden and her She'd never even, she had no court connection. She thought canned in a grocery store. She had no connection to the land, you know. So I, I kind of agree with you. I think there's an alienation that's happened because we actually are no longer connected somehow with our hands on the ground. Um, mm-hmm. So l- let me just ask you, like, in this um, going kind of back to your roots, if you will, the, the table life, how do you see this vocation informing and potentially shaping your faith? I have always believed, and I think I get this very much from my family members because I think it's sort of their natural instinct as well. But I think that God gives us all a set of gifts and, and purpose. And um, But I think that we don't always uh, uncover it. I think it's up to us to uncover what those are. And it's up to us to decide whether we sort of truly want to fulfill that potential and dig deep enough to discover what, what exactly it is we're meant to be doing with ourselves. And so I think for me, I had to take this, this leap of faith. Um, I had to leave sort of the trappings of a life that has, was more glamorous and had more money and have a willingness to trust that there's a plan and that, that, that we're not always in control of that plan. Mm. Um, my godmother and I are very close and she always says to me, you know, there's, there's like, you know, your life, your life is a tapestry and, um, you, you know, you look at the back of it and it's all these sort of knots and it doesn't really make sense. And, you know, you're sort of working on it. And at the end of your life, you're going to pull it or turn it around and step back and look at it. And it all makes sense why things happen the way they did. And, and I always think about that when I'm sort of, um, taking these chances that maybe don't seem like the safest ones in my, in my sort of path and my career choices. And, um, but I think the first sign I got from God that I made the right decision was when I was living in the middle of nowhere, cooking the South of France. And I heard that Lehman brothers had gone under and mm-hmm. I thought of all my brothers who had given their entire lives and careers and who had lost everything. Um, and so for me, you know, I'm, I'm looking always for the thing that makes me come alive. And I think when you can get to the place where your life's work and your life are symbi- symbiotic, um, that sort of is how you come alive. And I think it's when you know, you've found your vocation and, and you're doing what, what God intended for you. And so I guess I would, that's probably the, 
simplest way I could say that <laughs> I connect my vocation and my faith. Yeah, that's beautifully said, beautifully said. Well, I know that you have traveled all over and you've met men and women from all different kinds of backgrounds. And so I'm just curious how how your table experiences with others have helped you make sense of the world around you um, and maybe even revealed more of God to you. Like, can you share any of that? Like, how does that inform you mm-hmm. about our world? You know, because we, we actually discover our world by being with others and being, qu- we, we get we get pushed, we have to think and do new ways. And so the more you yeah. experience different people from different places, right, the more it starts to inform you about the world in which we live and move and even the God in which is part of this world and created this world. So what would you say to that? Yeah, I think that's probably a large part of why I got into the culinary world. Um, why I became a chef is I, I loved the stories of the people I was meeting around the food. And so I actually have a new show coming out in October on American public television. And it's literally that it's me traveling around and learning from people often around a table, um, learning about their passions. Uh, it's called modern pioneering, but I think um, what I've come to learn in the years of meeting these people is that I think the most joyful, satisfied people are the ones who have found that vocation that God intended for them. Um, they've like sort of found that purpose, and they're seeing it unfold. Um, and I and I see this Amazonian look in their eyes, you know, that feeling and that fire. It it really changes them forever, um, and so I think. You know, I think it's hard for humans to get to that place in this world right now and at the pace that we're operating at. You know, life has become mm-hmm. so fast-paced. Um, you know, we're not very connected to who we are anymore. We're sort of doing what we think we're supposed to be doing or obligated to be doing. And so, you know, I sort of have come to that conclusion by meeting people along the way that are truly fulfilled and, and happy and have that Amazonian look. It's, the conclusion is that we need to slow down. You know, we need to become more analog um, and we need to practice what I call manual literacy, you know, use our hands, put away our phones and use those human instincts that God gave us. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're sort of, we've gotten away from that a little bit at the pace that we're operating at. <laughs> Maybe not even a little bit. <laughs> Maybe a lot. Yeah. Maybe a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let me just pause here and say to those who are listening, if you're enjoying this podcast, would you go over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to and subscribe, leave a review and like pass it on to another woman or maybe even a guy that needs to be hearing this kind of stuff. So it's interesting, Georgia, you talked about meaning and finding your vocation, finding meaning in your vocation. And, um, I, I was in Uganda, the middle of Uganda, and for some reason I decided to study Ecclesiastes, which I don't know anybody that says, hey, let's take a while and just study this very depressing <laughs> book. But um, I was struck by Solomon's conclusion about the meaning of life. So he talks about in this, this letter that he writes that he chased after so many things in life to find value, purpose, and meaning. And he lists like women and wealth and knowledge. And he concludes throughout the book that everything that he had been chasing is vanity. It's meaningless. And then several times in his book, he says this concluding statement. And, and this is really where he's saying, and this is what meaning and purpose is all about. And this is the statement he makes. He says, there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in your work. These pleasures are from the hand of God. And when I was studying that in Uganda, it struck me so interesting that he kept repeating that. 
And I started thinking about why, what, what does he mean when he says to eat and drink and then to have purpose in your work? And I started thinking about what antiquity, you know, mealtimes around antiquity were like. And again, they were these complex tools for building community, for building intimacy. And so when I thought about it, I pictured him like lingering for hours over food with his people intimacy, knownness, like his tribe. And I was thinking about how this harkens to what God said about humans when he created us in Genesis. He says, let us make humans in our image. And of course, that's the Trinity speaking. And so when I see that, I think, okay, fundamentally, God is relational and he made us to be that too. It's one of the ways we reflect him, we image bearer him. And so we're these social beings. I, I love this one book I read was talking about how a baby comes out of the womb looking for someone who's looking for her. And so this idea of the table, of connecting, of being known, of lingering with our tribe, like it is fundamentally core to who we are. And, and Solomon says the meaning is, to, is that. Like, man, you have that. You've got it in life, right? And so I think God has provided food from the land, a table to linger around as, as, a, as a means, a tool for us to actually develop connected, deep meaningful relationships, which make us very human. So with all of that explanation, um, do you think that this table experience, and again, it, it can look, it can, it can look in a variety of different forms, but, um, helps women connect to a deeper sense of purpose in their life and maybe even stop chasing the meaningless things. And sometimes those meaningless meaningless things, let me say, our society has, society has told us they're not meaningless, like sitting in front of 500 computers in an office with a cafeteria cart going by, right? So that you can make a ton of money and live a certain lifestyle. Solomon chased after that, right? And he says, look, there's deeper purpose here. So have you seen women do that through your work? Um, have, Have you seen God work in providing deeper knownness around the table through, through your experience? Where have you seen that happen? Totally, absolutely. I, I, I'll tell you a little bit more about sort of what I do in a bit, but I, I do spend a lot of time with, with women and, um, you know, I spend a lot of time with women around a table <laughs> and I have seen that really bring a lot into focus for women because I think it allows them to gain perspective about what really matters and what really doesn't matter and also who they are in a cellular level. I mean, a lot of the things you described, you know, are sort of very elemental parts of being a human. Um, and I think, you know, they are what help you feel closer to God, you know, whether you realize it or not, or whether it's intuitively or clearly, sorry, I just dropped something. Okay. Um, you know, there's no way to get closer to God, in my opinion, than, you know, when you're out in nature, among all of his creations, you know, whether it's, work or, or just sort of bringing that all back to a table. Um, you know, we don't do it much anymore, not nearly as much as we used to as a society. Um, and so I think, you know, we sort of lost ourselves and and what we're meant to be doing and knowing and feeling and sensing as humans. Um, our senses have become dull actually, I would say. And so I think, um, I've seen a lot of women's priority priorities realign, so to speak. Um, once they spend more time, you know, around a table in nature, sort of with other women getting outside their comfort comfort zone and outside their normal routine and sort of allowing themselves um, to be seen in a more elemental level, if that makes sense. Mm, Absolutely. Absolutely. I find it interesting, you know, um, 
it seems like during this pandemic, everybody's gone to Home Depot or wherever and gotten gardening supplies, right? Yeah. And, and, and they've, they've created gardens all around their house. And it's become very yeah. therapeutic, right? Yeah. And like, we're sure. all going, yeah. <laughs> it's called getting back to the <laughs> basics, you know? Um, uh, so sure. in, our, in our first episode, I shared with the listeners uh, about the importance of the table in my life. And, and it's always been a, a central part, and including as an adult. And so I'd live, I lived in Dallas for like 28 years. And then we, you know, as you know, just recently moved to Austin. And we couldn't take our table with us because we moved from a house to an apartment and there wasn't room for the table. And I decided instead of giving it away, which is what I would normally do, I decided I was going to burn it. Kind of like a sacrifice as a thanksgiving to God. Um, now, I need to know, you all need to know out there listening that this table was was really ordinary. In fact, my daughter Madison says it's really ugly. And it was by far really worn out, like the shellac had worn off. So when you put your arms down, like it literally did stick. It was a little embarrassing, but it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't fancy. Um, um, but what happened around that table was holy and sacred. And we read around in scripture that um, objects in the temple weren't weren't holy because they were made by with some special material. They were holy because they were set apart um, for God's use. And that's how I felt about life around the table, and so I burned it. So this is kind mm-hmm. of a hard question because I'm going to ask you to, like, try to describe mystery, which is actually what I'm already hearing in your words. You're trying to describe what happens when mm-hmm. we connect with the land. But, you know, mystery— it, Describe mystery or something that happens that we can't quietly quantify or put to words, but have you ever, like, had this experience like I did around my table, like where you've seen God create holy and sacred space around a table, where you've seen ordinary actually become or be holy? And again, it's kind of a mystery kind of question. Yeah. I have, absolutely. And I think that's maybe why I'm so drawn to it and crave it. Um, and it can sometimes be subtle, but it's something that I strive for in any gathering I have. Um, but it's when you have that sort of just the right mixture of a deep conversation in a setting, um, you know, where it's conducive to really getting to know someone. And I think that's when a kind of magic happens. I mean, that's sort of church to me. <laughs> it just, it feels like it's been touched by God. Um, and I was, like I mentioned my godmother earlier, I was fortunate to have two godparents growing up um, who I'm very close to. Uh, their brother and sister, and they have a mother who's now 97, and and she still cooks every Sunday around a long table, and mm. everyone is. And so that was sort of a blueprint for me, you know, sitting at the end of her kitchen table as a child, having her feed me pastino with butter, and it sort of set the tempo to my life. And having her pray for me around the the table over food, um, you know, it, it gave me a level of nurturing that that can only happen around a table through God, and so. I sometimes think that the simplest things are the most holy and the most mysterious and have the most magic to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you have to sort of um, really find a way to sort of create that table and be present for it. And it doesn't have to be fancy. It can be humble and simple. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're going to talk a little later about how do we create that table. But I, 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 um, I love that you mentioned that idea that it's in the ordinary, and it kind of really is. And, and you also mentioned um, 
communication, talking around the table. And I think this is something that we don't do really well either. And I have actually spent a lot of time in my ministry, like even developing questions for people to ask around the table to create meaningful knownness kind of conversation. Um, Especially I find women sometimes if they're not careful, they can actually get at the table and talk about um, their work, uh, being successful, pool in the backyard, the kind of car they drive, right? And they keep talking about, if you will, these things that don't have full purpose. Yeah. Um, and we don't, we, we don't really know how to break through that surfacey kind of conversation, which all of that is fine. But at some mm-hmm. point, we're supposed to go deeper, something, yeah. you know, much more real. And I don't know that we know how to have those conversations. I do mm-hmm. think it's key, right? To, it's not uh, just no, sitting no. at the table and eating. Um, yeah, it's what's happening around the table. Um, so anyway, yeah. um, what, one of the things, um, I talk about in this episode is that during Jesus's day, there was a specific table culture, um, this social world of his, these, these meals had basic functions in the community and I've listed them before, but I'll list them again. It's like to show support and create solid solidarity with kin to enforce boundaries, hierarchy, status, gender, especially through seating arrangements, and to perpetuate social values and to gain honor. And we need to understand that there was this very specific table culture, and Jesus is using that, these meal times and what they all meant, to disrupt and challenge and reframe how his society, how people, his, his people group, how his kingdom on earth was going to look. And so we could say, like, he flipped the script at the table. And uh, one of the stories I shared about earlier um, is about Mary and Martha, which, you know, has always been a story told to kind of shame us women in the church, I feel like. But it's it, we've all heard it. It's this need that we need to stop being busy and instead have more quiet time with Jesus. And unfortunately, people, that story is not about that at all. <laughs> and if you want to listen, it's the second episode in the series where I uh, challenge that thinking. But in that mealtime story, Jesus challenged the social and religious exclusion of women. That's what was really going on in that story. And I love this about Jesus um, because you've heard me say this, Georgia. I think Jesus is good news for women. And and we, um, you know, we're actually doing this recording on August 26th, which is the 100th year celebration of women uh, winning the right to vote. And again, I want to emphasize that's been mainly for white women, women of color and Native American women. Um, That vote came decades later, and there's much to be said about that. But even though it seems like in America today we have equal opportunities, in reality there's still a lot of gender inequality, and we have the Me Too church movement um, that revealed that, you know, what we women all pretty much know, and that is that there's rampant sexism and misogyny in our culture and our churches. And statistics tell us that one out of three women in America experience some form of domestic violence in their lifetime. Well, think about that, one out of three. And so, you know, I have noticed over the last 20 some years of working with women that regardless of their status or education or or position, that women tend to have this low view of themselves. They may not even be that aware of it, but they walk around with this like not enough narrative in their head. Um, Mm. And I've actually even developed a course called I'm Enough Masterclass to help women kind of flip that script because that's not what Jesus says. Um, But you... I know that you also have a heart for helping women become confident in who they are. I mean, you can hear that as you've just mentioned throughout this dialogue. 
So you take women on these outdoor adventures and you, if you will, flip their script. Um, so share what you do and how this experience reframes things for women. Yeah, about 10 years ago, I started almost by accident hosting women in nature um, in the wild. They're called adventure getaways. And they're just a long weekend of women unraveling, um, you know, getting outside their comfort zone, trying new things with abandon and, and trying not to sort of self-edit in the process. And I, I think that women do tend to self-edit. They, mm-hmm. they put themselves in a box that's smaller than maybe they would naturally occupy just to make other people comfortable. Um, and I see that happen a lot. And I, I teach them how to make that box explode or break it open, um, teach them how to sort of take up their space in any setting that they find themselves in. And I, I don't do it so overtly. It's, it's more about putting them in an environment where they're allowed to try things that they're not good at or try things that they've never done before and, and do it with a sense of um, openness and, and feeling free to, to try without self-criticism. Um, because I want, them to, to, I want them to walk away to feeling like, you know, they belong in spaces that a lot of women don't feel like they belong in, um, whether it's, you know, in the woods hunting or the boardroom or a job interview. I think, you know, I think the word empowerment gets sort of boring um, after a while, but I think that's ultimately what I want them to feel, you know, confident in unfamiliar spaces. Um, And, you know, sometimes it takes a little dip in the kiddie pool before you can learn to swim. (laughs) We have to sort of, you know, I don't want them to wait for me to plan their next, adventure or their next ability to sort of try something new or push the limit um, of what they think they're capable of. But I think giving them a taste of what that is like, it hooks them. It becomes addictive. Um, and I, I've seen so many women um, who just literally go home and change their lives and in, in a really profound way. They change their careers. They, um, you know, they say the funniest things, you know, like I had a woman say to me, you know, I just, I can't wait to go home and tell my husband how great I am. I didn't realize that, you know, just sort of these <laughs> revelations, you know, that they you have. That. <laughs> they are, and, and, you know, the space that they can take up and should and, and sort of live their fullest selves and their fullest potential, like I was saying earlier, um, you know, really kind of own and get into the fullness of who God made them to be. And, um, I think that's what I see happen. Um, and sometimes it's not totally obvious that it's happening, but it's intuitive for them. They have this feeling. And I think ultimately it's the feeling rather than the telling mm. that really what, what makes the shift for them. Mm-hmm. So you would you say the majority of the women that you take out on these outdoor adventures, um, they're not outdoorsy kind of women that go hunting and fishing, no. right? No, not at all. Yeah, not at all. So None this is very not. new to them, like to go out very and kill new. an animal or, yeah. right, yeah. and cook yeah. it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, it's about teaching them about the cycle of life and, you know, manual literacy, kind of feel the stream to table. We start from the beginning. These are our natural human instincts. We're going to flip this switch on and, and turn those instincts on because they've become dull because we're all on our iPhones walking down city streets, um, you know, and so this is an opportunity for them to enliven all of those senses that have become dull. And we do it in a variety of ways, but you know, I'm a chef. And so I see everything through the lens of food and um, I teach them sort of where our food comes from in a very primal way. Um, But it, you know, those natural human instincts really turn on quickly once they're allowed to. 
That's funny. I had I was with this man recently. He was a male pastor, and he was asking me if he thought um, that men should be in leadership because you know men hunt and men tend to be you know more violent, and so therefore could go to war and be protectors and whatever. And and I I just thought about what he was saying, and I you know having grown up on a farm. Um, and I would say this is probably true of a lot of women in Texas who are cowgirls, right? Uh, I was like, I don't know, like, I've I've broken the neck of a chicken. I don't have, you know, and, and, and so I but this guy has been to Africa with us. And so I said to him, so-and-so, um, you, you've seen those women in South Sudan. I mean, yeah. they go get that goat and they cut the goat's, goat's throat and then they, you know, strip it and cook it and... I, I don't, yep. and they're not shy about, they're not having a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I think women in particular have been taught to stay away from that primal, go get your food, do what it takes. But we've, we've done that. I mean, women do that today around the globe. Totally. But we've lost I sight of that, that we do it. I don't I'm know sorry. why. Say that again. I'm sorry. I think we do it less in America for some reason than a lot of other countries. I'm not sure why, but you know, how we've become a little bit, I don't know, just detached from all of that. Detached from the land. Yeah. And yeah. so I think, I think for this male pastor, I'm thinking, dude, you've forgotten history. I mean, what do you think yeah. women do out there on the farm? They wait for the guy to get home and get the food ready. <laughs> 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 nope. They go out and get it. They know how to do it, you know? So, um, yeah, I just love, this is like, we're talking about ordinary stuff, right? We're again, ordinary where there's holy. We're talking about land and animals, and, you know, cooking from, from the ground, being together, and all of that is this sense of holiness, and I, I, I would imagine that the women you're working with are actually surprised by themselves, they surprised are. at they're themselves. Surprised. Yeah. It's there, you know? Yeah, they're very surprised. They get this look in their eye, like, you know, that Amazonian look in their eye that I said earlier that, you know, and suddenly you just, you come alive. Mm-hmm. In a way that you don't walking down the city street. Yep. And I that feeling, once you've experienced it, you don't go back. Yeah, I agree with you. Because it's holy. You've now and en- yeah. you've actually experienced holy. And it's mysterious. Yeah. I can't always explain it. But but you yep. but when you've encountered it, you know it. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So so how do you see Jesus in that? Like what do you think Jesus' message is to and for his women? You know, I think it it's a reminder to get back to your core, sort of, of who you are and our, our most original, true, authentic selves. And, you know, to love ourselves more deeply exactly how we are, you know, the way Jesus loves us. I think, um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, it's, it's that place where we can get to sort of know ourselves and know each other in a way that's truly satisfying and meaningful. I think a lot of disharmony comes from a place of us not being comfortable within ourselves. And so I, I, I really just think this always comes back to sort of how we view our, ourselves and, and love ourselves. Um, and I, especially for women, um, there is, it just goes back to that self edit. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I think that, like you said, Jesus is good news for women and, um, you know, his message is to have this, profound self-confidence and love of ourselves yeah yeah it's not an arrogant unfeminine unflattering thing it's it's powerful and um i think it's 
important to harness that power because so much good can be done with it. Well, you know, it's interesting you say self-edit. I even think, I definitely think we self-edit. I even think we self-abuse. So we we, we mentally beat ourselves up. The things that we say to ourselves, the stories we tell ourselves. And and not only are we holding them in our head, we say it out loud. We say it out loud. Um, It's interesting you talk about space, you know, teaching women to take up their space. And um, Mm. I haven't got this totally thought through, but this summer I've been chasing a lot of reading different books. And one of the things I'm reading right now is the development of embodiment theory. Um, by this woman that I think her name is Pravan or Pravan, I'm not sure how you say it. And one of the things that she's talking about is how we train women um, to not take up physical space with our physical bodies, to become smaller than we physically try to make ourselves smaller than we physically are. And so Mm. I'm I'm listening to this. She's going through all these recordings of, of different stages and different seasons of women's lives and how they do that. And it's it's research based, and I'm I'm reading it, and all the while I'm 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 watching Jesus in the scriptures, in the in the four gospels, and I'm thinking, oh my God, Jesus, you never asked us to get smaller. Hmm. What I see is Jesus actually inviting women in to take up space, physical hmm. space, right? Like Mary and Martha, he invites Mary and Martha. By the way, she, he's saying, you know, you could have picked this too. He invites her in to take up physical space. And, and yeah. to take her rightful place in that space, he does not ask women to get smaller. Yeah. Anyway, I'm still I'm still noodling all that, and I can't wait to see where that's all gonna go. But just I want to hear where you, where you take it. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. So, um, so there's a statement that says there are times when wisdom cannot be found in the chambers of parliament or the halls of academia, but in the unpretentious sitting at the table. And you kind of mentioned picking up some of that from your godparents and um, Mm. what wisdom have you gleaned while sitting at the table, maybe even as an adult and what wisdom do you hope our listeners will glean from you? Mm. You know, I, I just always believe that in a world where there seems to be so much disagreement on just about every topic, food and the table are the great unifier. Mm. You know, everyone's, Eat and breaking bread with someone is the best way to get to know them on a deeper level. Um, you know, food teaches you to, to slow down. Um, and I think if you if you go for the fast track, you're, you're cheating you're cheating yourself out of experiences. Um, and and life has a, has a pace to it. Life has a pace to it, and you and you should abide by that pace. Um, you know, I think I always joke. You know, kids know how to use an iPhone now, but they don't know how to peel a carrot. And um, I just think if we can get more people to sort of go at a more analog pace that we're intended to be at, we can, you know, really see each other um, in a way that we're not seeing each other right now. And I think the table um, really is conducive to that. Yeah, I love that. One of the things Steve and I have always done is had people in our home around the table, and we actually usually cook together. So we don't always Mm. have everything prepared. And one of the reasons is to kind of get our hands doing something together collectively before we sit down and eat. And it also gives people, I was just thinking, like, this is a very practical thing about slowing down and doing it together, is that people can sometimes, especially if they're new getting to know you, they can feel uncomfortable when they come into your home. Um, and so if they have something to do with their hands, right, like peel a carrot, yeah. they actually yeah. get more comfortable. 
Like give them yeah. something to do, right? Like, and I think us women think that we've got to have our, our house perfectly clean and the meal has to be stunning and, and we have to have it all ready and, you know, to present when people walk in and yeah. we miss it, right? Actually, maybe that we shouldn't be doing that at all. We should say, hey, be, bring in an onion and you'll be chopping that when you pull up on the table. You know? Yeah, um, yeah. Something about the process and the rhythm of that is even um, helps people to get to know each other better, I think, around the table. So, well, I have one more question and uh, let me frame it with a a little bit of a story. A a couple years ago, um, my son Hampton's closest friend, Cameron, um, uh, committed suicide and um, he was like a a son to me. And so um, it was devastating to our family. And I was asked to officiate his funeral, and that was probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. At the time, Cameron was, I think, 26, so he was a young young adult, you know. And so I, I, I shared this Solomon Ecclesiastes conclusion uh, um, when I did the funeral, and, and then I challenged the room because the room was full of young adults um, about Cameron's age, 24 to 30, and I, and I challenged this room uh, of young adults to get a table. And, and I meant literally, because <laughs> many of them were young, you know, and didn't have furniture yet. And I'm like, you need to go out and buy a table. It doesn't have to be pretty. It, you can yeah. have no shellac in your arm stick. Just get one, you know. Um, but I also was like kind of challenging them metaphorically, because I knew that they are young and they're being told chase after the money, chase after the wealth, chase, you know, all of these things that don't really, when life gets to its end, have as much meaning and purpose. And they're giving a lot of time to that. And I said, look, as you chase those things, be sure to also metaphorically build your tribe, get a table, um, your people, your people you're going to do life with, um, the ordinary, you know, that will become sacred in your life if you work hard at creating it. So we're in the middle of a pandemic. One of the hardest things for me has been the inability to gather around the table. Um, yeah. I just moved to Austin. I was so excited to get to know people and build a, a new tribe. And and then we went into isolation. So yeah. um, it's a little hard to literally be at the table with others right now. So what would you say to our listeners who are longing for this this mysterious thing that we're distra- describing about holiness around food, land, table, community, Um how would you help them get started? How do they go about building or experiencing this thing we're describing? Start with finding your senses again. Um, you know, get outside, practice manual literacy, meaning, you know, make, build, dig, weed, burn, um, you know, be physical. Um, I would say give yourself a technology fast mm. and see how much slower time rolls by and how present you are in a way that feels unfamiliar. Um, you know, being in nature, it will, it will enliven your senses in a way that I don't think you experience walking down a city street or in your day to day. Um, and I think it's the most important thing we can do as humans. It makes us more joyful, makes us better to one another. It makes us closer to our potential. And so I think if you, you know, slow down, and you create a table anywhere you can, and you just see how creative you can get with it and see what, you know, unlikely people you can invite to it. Mm. Um, I just, I think that's when you get to see what kind of magic unfolds. That's good. That's good. I was just thinking as you were saying that my daughter, um, 
she's decided with one of her friends who's in, uh, well, she was in California. Now she's in D.C. and my daughter lives in Austin. And so what they do is they actually get up in the morning and they both go for a run and they call each other and they talk while they're running around the lake. Hmm. And it's a way to do community, but they're doing it outside and they can't be together right now, you know. Um, And I was just thinking how Steve and I have been working hard to um, eat outdoors more. Right. And just sit outside yeah. on a blanket and take our little chairs out. I even bought myself an old lady wagon now and I can take all my <laughs> stuff down out of the apartment and eat. we're eating outside a lot. And sometimes we'll chit chat with people. And sometimes it's just really good to even see other people at this moment, you yeah. know, but whatever it takes to get, this is an opportune time to go outside and, yeah. and around a table. And, and we can create that in many yeah. different ways. So take your shoes off and feel the grass under your feet. Practice grounding. That helps too. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So, um, okay. Well, I, I want to thank you, Georgia, for being with us. And um, for those of you out there, you have a friend who needs to hear this. So I'm expecting you to share this episode and go on over to iTunes, Apple platform, whatever you're listening to sub- subscribe to Jackie always unplugged and Georgia, if they want to learn more about you and your work, where can they find you at? Um, you know, I'm on all the things. They can go to my website. It's just my name, georgiapellegrini.com. And, you know, I'm on all the social medias and such, but my website's probably the good launching pad for finding me. <laughs> awesome. Great. Well, I want to thank all of you for listening and let's have a pandemic safe day. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.